Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by these great companies that are giving us money to let you listen to their stuff. Bullshit, Kyle. We make this show. We make this show. You and me. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by us. <laughs> Someone's got to pay the bills, Dan, because it's not our trading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, roll them. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. Well, hello everyone and welcome to the China Shop. We are opening the doors again for another exciting guest episode. Today we have Alex Demosthenos. De- oh, God damn it, I just fucked it up after you just told me how to do it. <laughs> Demosthenos. Demosthenos. Is that right? Demosthenes. God damn it. <laughs> we are joined by Alex Demosthenes. Ran into him on Twitter. We saw that he was celebrating one year of live trading. Uh, so we're really excited to talk to him about some of the things he learned on that journey. But before we jump into that, I'd like to take a couple minutes here just to say thanks to our friends at the Trade Pro Academy and Orderflow Labs for sharing their toolkits with us. Uh, if you're looking for institutional quality trading education, make sure you check out that tradeproacademy.com. And if you're trading futures, you really need to check out those custom tools and studies at orderflowlabs.com. Links will be in the episode description. Last time we waited patiently for everyone to t- check them out, but I don't think that really went over too well. <laughs> Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Ah, fantastic. Happy Halloween. I had a had a bit of a struggle this morning, but I was able to regroup, take a break, come back, sit back down, and grind out a nice little win. Very nice. What were you trading? Uh, I had to go back to Sim Jail because uh, I, I ended up blowing up an account about two weeks ago. So I am on MES with uh, Spy Futures. Excellent. Great. But the charts are closed, so I will not be distracted. <laughs> I can't say the same for me, but I will not be distracted either. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, Alex, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How'd you how'd you get into it? Like, yeah. how'd your journey start? Yeah, no, this is uh, an interesting one. I'm I'm 36 now, and when I was a junior in high school, so I, what does that put me at? 16 or 17 years old. We had a mm-hmm. stock market competition, and um, as you know, true to true to form, me and the other guys took it took that competition part really seriously and got really involved in it. And it really turned out to be almost more like day trading because we were in and out of positions that that were moving. And so I got my start 20 years ago. And that was one of my most, you know, the things that I was most interested in through high school, uh, through the end of high school. And my parents for graduation gave me a very small gift uh, to start an account. And I've been trading uh, stocks ever since then. Into college, my, my college roommate and I got into start trading uh, the foreign exchange market. We had no analysis, no strategy, no plan, and no clue what we were doing. Um, <laughs> but it was a good way to wet our feet, get used to markets, get uh, used to what it feels like to lose money really quickly. And I've been really involved in it ever since then. Uh, I've, I've you know, iterated through the years. I've tried options and I've tried um, just you know, the, the typical portfolio management, which I still do for a portfolio of stocks these days. Mm-hmm. And then, as you referenced, uh, more recently, have made the full-time transition into trading. And so I now uh, focus on three markets. I focus on the S&P 500 E-mini futures uh, and also trade the, e- uh, the futures in uh, crude oil and gold. So uh, I left... I gold? Worked, yeah, gold. I, I worked in banking for um, for a while after, after grad school. So eventually got to the point where I just felt like it wasn't, you know, I, I felt like a lot of what I was doing was stagnating. A lot of uh, the work felt very procedural. I knew what I was doing. Mm-hmm. There was no growth. There was no, I really didn't see a future there. So um, like many people um, worked from home during COVID and kind of got that ability to be around looking at the markets more all day long. And I knew this was always what I wanted to do uh, professionally full time. So I uh, just had that opportunity to really work um, extra time during COVID to make it happen. So I, as you mentioned, I've been doing it full time now for actually a little bit over a year uh, by now. And it's my full time job trading futures. And so uh, really enjoying it and really happy with the decision that I made to, to go full time. I, I can't wait to dive into some of that journey. But uh, before I do that, I want to just jump back real quick, back to high school. Was that a, a dedicated class that you took? Was that like an elective that had this stock picking competition? They, or is that just a 
Yeah, they made us take, so they introduced a new class when I was uh, kind of in the second half of high school. I, I don't remember, I, I want to say it was called like economics or something, but you know, clearly it wasn't economics. It was just sort of this very, very, very uh, rudimentary introduction to, to markets at all. And I don't remember if it was mm -hmm. required. I, I want to say it was required, but I can't quite remember. Um, the teacher, though, that, that ran the competition, I, I, I suspect she must have had some of her own interest in doing that because um, it wasn't a widespread thing that a lot of the students were doing, but, um, you know, across different grades, across different classes. So it was just sort of this like narrowly focused class that we were in. But it, it sort of was the basis um, of the class. We, we really participated heavily in that stock market trading competition and, and uh, really got very little guidance on it. So we had to spend a lot of the time on our on our own. <laughs> we, we, we had obviously the internet, um, not in the form it's in today, but we started using Yahoo Finance back in those days and mm -hmm. used that as, as a basis for research. And we didn't know a ton of what we were doing, but we focused a lot on uh, you know, what the talking heads and analysis were, were saying back in, back in those days. Seems to be like the natural progression, isn't it? Yeah. Like you, you want to learn, so you just start gobbling up everything everybody else says, and then you start to realize that most people don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> you do start to realize that, and I think one of the other things that I'll, I'll eventually be touching more on uh, in, this, in this chat is that there's a lot of that information available. There's a lot of that information out there, and, and at some point, it's incumbent on you to kind of start to sift through that information and find what's most important. And that's kind of the, the growth and development of a trader, and that's sort of the arc that you go through is starting to learn to have a lot of information, but also uh, split it up into you know useful bits that you can actually employ in the market. And I think that you know when you've got so much different information that they're putting out on Yahoo or from these analysts. Yeah, you have to you have to really learn to to sift through it. I mean, it should be a it should kind of key into that that mindset once when you see that like multiple analysts can cover the same stock but have wildly different opinions on where it's going. <laughs> it's uh it's it's interesting because you see that across everywhere, right? You see that across mm -hmm. people's opinions with what the Fed's going to do next. You see that whether or not the market's bottomed, uh, and and it goes in every facet of the market you're going to have those conflicting opinions and, and at the end of the day that's what that's what makes a market because you have to have those two conflicting sides because in any trade in any transaction there's a buyer and a seller and they're diametrically opposed and one of them's going to be right and one of them's going to be wrong and so so again that's I, I think that that's very accurate and it's also very reflective of what a market is too it's a very interesting point you make there uh, about the two sides being diametrically opposed and needing the other side in order to make the thing happen. Anytime you make a good call, you got to just go back and like think to yourself, okay, this was a fight here. I saw the fight. I picked the right side, but that could have easily gone against me. Yeah. Like it's all about looking for things that just increase your probabilities. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, when it comes back to the, the, the bit on being diametrically opposed, it's also not, you know, people are in the market doing all kinds of things. You know, there's, there's speculators mm -hmm. like us, but then there are hedgers. There are people who are using this for very, you know, the futures market has a very, very legitimate purpose and, 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 and right. instrumental reason to, for, for being in existence. And so there's so many competing interests in the market doing so many different things that you, you got to like take that sort of diametrical opposition uh, with grain of salt too, because th again, there's just so many purposes for being involved in that market that people could be buying at the highs, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, interested in advancing the market or, or buying for it going up. They could be closing a position. So you have to kind of think about, mm -hmm. you have to always think about the fact that there's different reasons. So within a that diametrical opposition, you've got different reasons for the execution. And it's really, you know, fascinating in that sense, because we can't really uncover all of those reasons. We just have to kind of accept at face value that that's what's happening. Is it worth learning more about like the different reasons of why people would enter trade so you can better understand the other side? Um, like I get the value of like looking at things from different time frames so you can understand like the swing trader versus the day traders. Like those, when those levels start to combine, then you start to see like, you know, stronger, higher probability areas. But like, you know, like you mentioned, the, the futures being used as like a hedge. Like, is it worth learning how to hedge a position in order to figure out like where those spots might be occurring? I don't know. I, I don't think so. And the reason I say that is because I really am, am, am data dependent. Uh, I really want to see 
you know, I, and we'll talk about it, but like in my strategy, I have certain things that I'm looking for in the market to give me an indication as to what happens mm-hmm. next. And, and, and as you say, I'm just making a guess on what happens next. But really what, what does not matter to me is, is trying to decipher some of the underlying reasons. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's liquidity that moves markets. And, and that liquidity mm-hmm. is what moves the price. And so if the liquidity is there, really it doesn't make a huge difference to me about why it's there. You know, um, I just want to see when I'm in a market, I really want to see the variables that I'm looking for. And oftentimes that's, that's volatility and volume and delta and stuff like that. I want to see that they're there and, and it's much of less importance to me to figure out why. And I think I've seen mm-hmm. on just being involved on Twitter, I've seen that it, it can be really damaging to waste so much time trying to figure that out. And, and you might see chatter about you know, there's trapped shorts here and trapped buyers there. And, and I think spending too much time on that can be really detrimental because you end up missing the the underlying data, which is telling the data is the data and you can't really argue with that. And so mm-hmm. that to me is, is of utmost importance. Now, I do think that there are people who have strategies based on looking for those trapped buyers. And that's probably a different story because that can provide really specific levels that provide stop runs and that sort of thing. And, and knowing that those stops are trapped there, that might give you an edge for a certain strategy. For me, it's just not, it, it's not super important. So I don't, I don't, I don't recommend like worrying too much about it unless you find that you're, you're using a strategy like that. So um, yeah, in, in some, I'm not sure it matters too much to me, but it's certainly applicable other places, other people. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned too, talking about like just trying to learn as much as you can, but then there's, there's also the the problem of trying to put that stuff that you learned into action, like come up with a way to use that information and yeah. trying to learn too much stuff before you can actually apply it could be detrimental as well. Totally. Um, something that, that I went through in my journey, which we can get more into, it's just exactly that. So I went from a place of being singularly focused on one data piece to wanting to learn more and then having too much data. And mm-hmm. both of those present different problems to you in the market and uh it, it's part of the arc of development to kind of learn to take all of those different pieces and, and categorize and group them into what's most useful to you mm-hmm. well let's talk a little bit more about uh, your path because I, I think I, I saw you posting that it wasn't you know just uh like today's the day i'm gonna quit and i'll never go back again right like, this isn't your first time trying right right yeah so what changed between the first try and the second try that made you successful this time? Yeah, I, I think that um, in part planning, you know, I, I needed some of the flexibility to save up money to plan to do it. And and mm-hmm. secondly, I think a huge thing and, and something I talked about is that being home. So, so when I would back when I would go into an office and this is before work from home was such a big thing. I, I couldn't, you know, when I was in an office, I can't have the charts up all day at work because I was working mm-hmm. in banking, but I wasn't a trader. And so it, it would make no sense for me to have those up. And, um, <laughs> and people probably ask questions. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's not, that's just not, it wasn't my function. And, and um, so it just didn't make sense to do. So having the opportunity just to be more involved. And then on top of it, you know, the, when the world shut down for lockdowns, like we didn't, there was a lot less social stuff going on. So I, um, I think very wisely spent that time wisely and, and just decided to focus in on this. And that's kind of really just having that time commitment uh, available to me was big. So that was one reason. But really, um, I think it also, you know, I think the real reason is that I just needed to organize myself, structure my time, make sure I'm looking at the right things, learn a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. but then learn how to kind of parse through that information to find the right stuff. And so, you know, a, a lot of it just became me kind of identifying. So so first drinking from the fire hose and then starting to whittle that down <laughs> and then classify it, then organize it, then structure it and really get that, that information in place uh, that I needed to become a better trader. So as we go more into it, I really talk about, and this is very central to my 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 mentoring practice too with clients, but I really organize the market into three main places, which is your strategy, uh, a methodology and risk management around uh, how you execute that strategy. Mm-hmm. And then the third piece is psychology or uh, the mental aspect of trading. And so those are the three main places, the three main buckets uh, that make up a trader. That's at least how I view it. Mm-hmm. You can kind of think of it as a three-legged stool or a tripod where if one of those is faltering or, or falls or falls off, well, down comes falling the entire um 
I guess, trading career, down comes the trader himself or herself. And so, right. so, so yeah, those three legs are of utmost importance. They can each be addressed uh, methodically and, uh, and each need to be given their due. Well, we got plenty of time. So why don't we start with the, uh, the first bucket? <laughs> sure. I'll kind of take you through my journey and, and how I, how this yeah. kind of works for me. So, um, as I mentioned, coming up, you know, going from high school into college into post-college years, I just tried out a bunch of different stuff. Uh, and as I got going, really focused on specifically being a trader in the futures market, I realized that my first issue issue was very much uh, strategic in nature. So I used hmm. uh, the the market profile and the volume profile, and I used these very, you know, the kind of things that creep up or crop up every single day, these data points that would come up with my analysis, and I would get really, really locked into that single data point. And mm-hmm. like any other trader or, or, you know, person in some other field, like you get really excited when you see that data point. You also get really excited when you're able to recognize it for the first time and it, it kind of pans out. So the, the, the good thing is that you learn that data point or that piece of analysis really well. Mm-hmm. And you feel that sense of accomplishment and ownership, I think, when you first see it or it works out. But it's really only one data point, too, at the end of the day. And for me... It was an invaluable learning experience in that I specialized in the market profile and learned a lot of stuff about it. But uh, I I realized that again it was only one piece of the puzzle, and I had to overcome this by by starting to look at different pieces of analysis and look for more variables that would eventually help me to uh, support or reject a trade thesis. And so mm-hmm. um, that that's really how I how I started to clean up a lot of the information in the market and just start to like expand my view of what's in the market and, and really, um, you know, learn to not focus on that single data point uh, and, and really just kind of have a good understanding of, of what makes a market, how a market functions and, and sort of the underlying characteristics of trade. So, you know, all that to say, and, and I'll pause here uh, for any questions, but all that to say is that like, you know, at some point you have to kind of graduate from that rudimentary single thing that you're looking at and start to take in more data because it really kind of gives you a more complete picture. Yeah, I, I remember early in my journey, like, uh, and that's something I still think struggle with, but trying to, like, you see a trade idea, you get excited about that trade idea, and then you stubbornly keep trying to execute it, even when, you know, objectively, if you're watching it, you'd say that idea has failed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's it's like, you know, you, the thing is that you have to like really start to like, so like, let's use, I always use the um, example of just simple support and resistance. So you have a market that comes down to support and trades right back away from it. Well, first of all, I want to understand a little bit about what that means and just kind of try to put a story around it. It means that uh, at the end of the day, or, or, or even in the heat of the moment, the, the buyers saw value. They saw a discount. They saw that the market traded down to support and they found, they found that that was a discount to, to value. And they decided they wanted to buy it up. Okay, so what does that mm-hmm. mean? And that means that basically because they were buying at a lower level, they're expecting it to go to a higher level. And what you need to put into place is to know whether or not other participants in the market agree with that because it's not going to go down to support and reverse just because you have a line there, but rather it goes down to support. You have the thesis that buyers may come in because they see uh, a discount. And then you want to know that the buyers do in fact come in. So it's it's a two-part mm-hmm. process. It's not just you know, I'm going to go long here and hope that the buyers show up. Well, no, I want to know that they do show up. And I can really represent that on charts with volume and volatility, the ability to, to migrate price higher. And that's, you know, that's kind of that secondary layer that I put into my trading uh, after I was so locked into one data point. And I can really, you know, by focusing on what actually happens and how buyers actually react there, I can filter out a bad trade. I can filter mm-hmm. out my uh, kind of early desire to make a good trade, which like, let's call let's call buying support what it is. If you don't have confirmation, it's gambling. You're just hoping that it happens. You're hoping it right. works out. And so I wanted to really uh, structure my my strategy around answering that question as to whether buyers come in or not. And, and that gives me a trade. So uh, it, it helps. It has the two uh, two part, you know, solution there of filtering out bad trades, but also hopping on to higher probability trades. So it sounds like you've kind of started leaning into order flow then. Yeah, it's a important part of my process. It's not everything, but uh, a lot of a lot of what you can do. Again, when I when I use support as an example, well, I want to know that mass consensus comes in there, and I can get that from also from volume, uh, delta, mm-hmm. and and a, and a volatility measure. And you know, so so that really you know indicates to me that the buyers came in. Order flow is kind of an extra piece, which 
by the way, I, I think order flows better once you have a really good understanding of the market. It'd be really difficult early on. And, and that's what I always yes. kind of <laughs> preach is, yeah. well, what I preach is too, is like use order flow to answer a question that you have, which is, you know, do buyers come in here? And, and so I do use order flow, but it should be, I think, kind of secondary once you've kind of got more rudimentary understanding and analysis in place. I like that because uh, I know one of the struggles I had, and that's one of the struggles I think we see a lot when people try to start implementing order flow is that until you really understand it, like it's just way too easy to justify trades anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And it also comes back to the point of using it to answer a question rather than it being an answer in in search of a question so that what i right. mean is yeah so like you, you're just adding things on just for the hell of it and, and that's not that's i don't think order flow serves you very well there <laughs> and then you run into the problem you mentioned which is finding justifications for a trade so then you you mentioned that uh, like your progression then was to start with basically basic structure and then you started implementing other things like volume delta yeah uh, and volatility like how do you use those then to to say like oh this is a like, what are you specifically looking for to say that this level is confirmed? People are here. It's go time. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So a strategy, and this kind of rolls into the next point of, of the methodology and risk management piece. But for me to execute, I want objective variables to be there. And they tell me either to trade or not trade. It's a mm -hmm. binary It's a binary answer for me. Do you trade or do you not? And the answer is yes or no. There's no other it's not open for interpretation. There's no opinion. There's no uh, feel. It's just, mm -hmm. do you buy or trade? And I want that signal. And I want it uh, you know, defined in objective variables so that I almost have automated the process to where I don't have to sit there and, and make some judgment call in the heat of the moment when real money's on the line. So mm -hmm. what I'm looking for is almost always an entry candle. I use a 15-minute chart. And I'm always looking at for an entry candle that has volume that is high. And how do you define high? Well, for me, I have uh, Bollinger Bands to measure volume. Mm -hmm. And I use, uh, actually, I'm, I'm not, I believe I have it set uh, for an exponential moving average and a Bollinger Band. And, and what that gives me is a binary, is volume high or is volume no, uh, low? And if it's not high, then I just don't trade. And if it is, then that's my signal. So that's how I measure volume. Uh, similar for volatility, an extremely easy measure is just looking at a candle close and doing the absolute value of the high and low of that candle mm -hmm. and comparing it to every other candle. So again, using a Bollinger Band um, moving average, I just can make that uh, definition of high and low volatility. And so I use those two measures in conjunction along with the delta. The delta is, while I do have a footprint chart and I can actually get a, a, a gross number for the delta, I, I just use um, whether or not it's high or low, also using Bollinger Bands. And so for me, everything's very automated. Everything is not open to random whims and interpretation. I just have these measures on my chart. I like, I really like how you did that, because uh, that's one of the things that I think a lot of us struggle with too, is when we're trying to just or qualify or, or write out our strategy or our thesis is figuring out how to take the subjective nature out of it. Mm -hmm. But something simple, like I would never have thought to combine a Bollinger band on a volume chart. That's, yeah. that's brilliant. <laughs> it takes all of the subjectivity away. It does. And I've got two measures on here. I've got two Bollinger bands. I've got one that I use for medium volume and one that I use for high volume. I don't care if it's medium. I care if it touches the high one or not. And that's all, mm -hmm. that's the only measure I use. Is it high or not? And that's it. And I recently had a client working on his strategy and he kind of said, um, volume's high. And so my question to him was, well, how, how do you know? Like, what's your definition of high? Because right. that looks high to me or that looks low to me. And it turns out his, what, what he considered high is medium to me. And, and he was kind of struggling with how do I define that? And so, the very first thing that we did, and you have to play around with to see what works best for you, but it's just thinking about how you use those 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 moving averages to determine uh, that variable. Mm -hmm. And I again, as you said, like I want it to be binary. I want to take that that um, subjectivity out of it, and and that's been incredibly useful for me because I can't argue with what it's telling me. Right, right. I just love taking the subjectivity out of it because in my mind, I'm the person that's the most detrimental to my trading. For sure. <laughs> like, for sure. Like I need to figure out ways to take me out of it as much as possible and make it as automatic as I can. Right. And that, that 
I mean, it points to two things too, um, and, and I agree entirely. But once you've got that strategy in place, you need to put guardrails in. I think that managing your account, uh, the risk that you're taking, and how you think about risk is, is incredibly important. And the other piece is that just because you have a strategy, just because you have a signal that is objective and uh, well planned out and all that good stuff, that doesn't mean you can trade it. Does it mean that you're right. going to be rid of the emotions involved? And so once you have that piece, it's crucial to focus on both the guardrail piece as well as the uh, psychology and mental piece. Well, let's uh, let's let's dive into some risk management then. Let's do it. <laughs> um, let's see here. So risk management, um, like many people, uh, I started with smaller accounts. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned in college with FX, just completely lost pretty much every trade. It got lucky a few times and, and that's normal. But in futures, I had to go through the process of, of learning and, and playing with real money. And so I kept my losses as small as I possibly could. But after several accounts going to um, almost zero, I, I really realized that I wasn't actually um, managing risk at all. I had no concept of, of how much I want to risk per trade, what, you know, what makes mm -hmm. sense to risk per trade. But on top of that, and some of the things that I see with clients is that they blow the entire account up because they didn't have those guardrails in place. And so it's, it's really, Guilty. yeah, well, I think, <laughs> as I said, I think we've all done that. Right. And, and yeah, yeah. You know, at some point you recognize that need for me, it was, all right, you know, like we just talked about, I want to take a lot of that subjectivity out of it. And so for me, I'm not a coder, but I, I um, made an X, I mean, I'm very strong with Excel. So I made an Excel document um, and I coded in VBA, which is the, the language of Excel. I used some YouTube videos and put the code in place to where now what I do is I've got, I, I've got my risk defined. I've got the amount uh, in my um, account put into my, my risk manager. And what I'll do is I'll select the market I'm going to trade. I'll put in the parameters of where my stop, where my mechanical stop is going to be, as well as my entry. And my system spits out information on how to trade that. So basically, it tells me now how many contracts to trade, what my first target is going to be to start de-risking that. And one of the things that I've posted about several times is that you have to create profitability in trading. It's not going to come to you. You have to incrementally take profit as it's available to you. Mm -hmm. And I determined uh, the, one of the best ways for me to do that is if I'm trading, let's say, six contracts, I'll take about a third uh, of that position off at a 10% gain because it accomplishes the twin goals of taking incremental profits, but also de-risking. So I've got fewer contracts yeah. on the line after that. And that's part and parcel to everything I do. So I have a stop trading. So if I if I am at risk of going above a certain amount, I'm done for the day and I'll, I'll either turn it on simulation or just go do something else. Um, that's one of the big guardrails that stops me in a day. You, uh, I, I don't mm -hmm. even think it's... Um, it's just not even an option for me to blow up 15 to 20% of my account in a day because that's going to be devastating. So having that guardrail in place has been huge in, in maintaining the equity in the account. And then having these incremental ways to take profits along the way helps me both lock in profits, but also de-risk. And, and then really just mm -hmm. kind of, you know, it has the, the beautiful side effect of, of taking away some of the pressure and emotion that you feel too. So, you know, risk management is, is really key, but it's really under it's under advertised, it's under talked about, and, and it's really key to what I do. And it's just uh, making that math work for you. Because over time, if you have an edge, it should work really well, and yet people still lose. And so it's just a matter of how do we actually capture those gains. What's some of the, the best resources you found for learning more about risk management? Like, is there uh, some resources out there you wish you had in college that somebody <laughs> very, like, pointed you towards? I've found very few resources that do it. So I mostly talked to a fellow trader on Twitter, uh, but ultimately at the end of the day, I designed my own. I talked to a mentor I used to have, and what we what we realized was that about four to five percent of your account per trade is going to help you know accomplish a, a higher growth goal. And mm -hmm. but at the same time, four to five percent, if you lose that, like that that's a that's a significant hit to an account yeah. and your, and your um, kind of how you how you feel about that. And so I really focused on what I just said, which is really starting to de-risk that early on while taking a little bit of profits, because that gives me additional upside and it significantly reduces the downside of that trade. Yep. Unfortunately, I have found very, very few resources, though, that help with that. And so. I, I have this, um, this this little thing, that this little system, this little risk manager that I built. And for me, that's been the best resource. Um, when I work with clients, I help them introduce that into their trading process too. But unfortunately, I've never found a, I've never read a book or anything like that about it, but rather just 
it's just sort of uh, reflective of how I see markets and how I think about money. And, and I think that my risk manager really is a reflection of that. Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. It always seems like the the risk management portion of like the trading books is kind of buried in there. It's not really like uh, like the, the reminiscences of a stock operator. He talks about blowing out his account multiple times and you're like, hmm, he probably could use some risk management. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, you know, he had a vastly different, I guess, appetite for risk, too, because he was blowing massive amounts of money and then making them back. And that's just uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> and interesting. It's interesting. But yeah, you're right. There's no risk management sections of books often will talk about limiting risk and obeying risk and all these things, but there's no actual practical tool for it. Like there's no instructions on how to manage risk and there's no, there's few um, platforms I'm aware of that manage risk very well. And, and so that really is the reason I had to make my own. And it, it just, it, it kind of is very compatible with my understanding of, of risk and markets. And that's why I think it works so well for me. I would suggest uh, if you haven't yet, do you play poker at all? Uh, some, uh, I, I have learned a lot about poker though, because I think it's, you know, the risk management and all that kind of translates well to trading. There's actually a lot of good literature on risk management when it pertains to, to poker playing. And I think that, like you just said, there's a lot of crossover between the two of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that makes good sense too, because the similarities between trading and poker are enormous. I mean, you're, you're basically betting on odds of an uncertain outcome. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, I'd be very interested in any suggestions you have regarding risk management because all, a lot of my view of it has been self-informed on stuff I've, you know, tangential, tangential readings and writings that, you know, don't talk about risk management and trading, but talk about conceptualizing risk generally. And that's been sort of the mm. basis. I'll, um, I'll look through my collections. I'm thinking, I can't remember the name of the book off the top of my head, but there's one in particular that had a really good section on just bankroll management and like nice. how to, like what your your stakes that you should be playing based on your size and like how to like, you know, set your, your profit target goals, uh, and like really good stuff. Yeah. Well, I think Jesse Livermore talks a lot in the book about it, but he talks about like, it took a long time to learn how to go big when I was right and, mm -hmm. and reduce it when I was wrong. And, and so it's, but, but at the same time you have to manage risk. You don't throw the whole farm uh, at, at when you think you have a good setup. And so, right. It, Cause even a good setup still, like you said, a probability. Exactly. And, and greed can take over, right? We, it's that <laughs> we, we kind of can basically de define it as the excessive desire for more and more and more. And right. it, you know, it can absolutely cause you to, to overbet when you think you're right, when that, in fact, will ruin the chances of your trading system if you're if you happen to get this either you're wrong or the market turns against you, which absolutely happens. That actually sounds like uh, <laughs> one of the things that really stuck out to me when reading the reminiscences of a stock operator is the guy saying like, uh, whenever I feel strong conviction, I have to put everything I own into it. Like, Whoa, <laughs> wait a minute, that doesn't sound like a good idea. <laughs> he um, he was like that though. I think it, yeah. it's his personality, and and he he weathered that storm time and time again, and just continued to like yeah kind of bet the farm when when he thought he was right and i think it works out really well when it's when you are right but when it works yeah when it works and i i, I don't have the option to go bankrupt uh, it's not yeah. um for him maybe he did i don't know but he was willing to live that way and and, and trade that way yeah no no thank you <laughs> <laughs> i don't want the swings like that i don't want to be a millionaire and then not <laughs> uh yeah well you know and then that that desire to be a millionaire also can drive you to just being you know making really bad decisions yes yes well speaking of which it sounds like we're kind of getting into a bit of the psychology here yeah yeah well let's let's talk about that i as i said 
once you have that strategy and that outline for how you want to execute trades, and once you have that, you know, that, that risk defined and, and start to think about the methodology for execution and entry and exit and all that good stuff. As I said, it doesn't mean that you have that's once you have those pieces in place, it doesn't mean that you have the ability to execute the plan and stick to that plan. Mm-hmm. And the, the, you know, there's two ways of thinking about how um, the brain really reacts to that. And, and I think that the most applicable one is that we have that fight or flight tendency. It was developed over millions of years in humans so that we keep ourselves from harm. Every trading book and every psychology trader will tell you that we have that, you know, that fight or flight instinct. And what happens mm-hmm. is that our brain can take over. We can feel that fear and we have the, the sort of the, the two sides of the brain, one being very emotional and the other one being very logical and well thought through. And what happens is when we feel really scared in a trade, that emotional brain can actually hijack and take over that other brain to, such that you can't access that rational thought. And so I realized quite early on that despite having a good plan in place, despite having my define my risk and even accepting the risk and saying, hey, I'm completely cool uh, if this goes to zero. Well, I found that that was the case in my logical mind. But the second I stepped into the market, that emotional mind started focusing only on those things. And it caused yes, me. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So any trader knows. And, and so it, it really causes you to, you know, your mouth is actually clicking the button that says flatten. And yet mm-hmm. you're sitting there knowing kind of like, hey, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. And so over the last six to eight years, I've been, I've had a huge personal interest uh, in just learning psychology. And I've read a ton about it and taking classes and all that good stuff. And um, I don't know if I ever had any real reason to do that. I, it was just interesting to me. And I found that this is all of that experience and knowledge is kicking in uh, really strong right now in the markets because it's helping me to formulate like a really strong uh, response plan to that. And one of the things I focus on most with my clients is kind of putting this piece into place so that, that they can actually access that that rational, impartial mind to make trading decisions as it's needed. So try as we might to, ex- uh, to eliminate some of the emotional barriers that cause us to not follow our plan, it's still difficult and we still feel mm-hmm. that fear in the moment. And so it's just a it's just a, um, it's been a, ma- a matter of me putting all those different, you know, pieces and the extensive set of tools I have for addressing the mental aspect into place and then putting them to work for me during the market. And so again, I, I just really always kind of focus about, focus on how that, those emotions can affect our ability to make a decision and, ex- and execute a plan. So once you become aware of that, let's say, like, what do you do? Like, how do you do to minimize the damage that it wants to cause? Yeah. So there's a quote somewhere that um, typically that says, or or basically that says that awareness is like part one, you become aware Mm -hmm. of it. And then it's like, how do you actually get past it? Or how do you not let it undermine you? So the thing that I really focus on, and, and something I even posted about this morning on my Twitter is that there's been studies in monks where it's actually found that they are able to just through breathing and just through mindfulness, they're able to reduce heart rate. They're able to really clear their mind to make those decisions. And so I, I, I like to say that I'm not encouraging anyone to adopt a, a meditative like spirituality practice or especially if it's incompatible with their own you know beliefs around that stuff, but rather we can look to the science and, and, and we see what the science says. And that is that we're able to take that fear that we feel and take it offline and really manage it. But unless you do that, unless you're, you know, really able to do that, then it, it's useless to you. So the thing that I, I really coach is starting to think about what that feels like, be very mindful of the thoughts that are coming into your head while you're in a trade, the ones that may be undermining you. And also being uh, very aware of the physical sensation and the, the sort of embodiment of that fear that you feel. And then starting to be, starting to quell that fear right before um, it, it starts to hijack your, your better mind. And that is just taking deep diaphragmatic breaths has been known to, hmm. you know, really, really effectively basically regulate those emotions such that you can actually deal with them and, and respond to them. So being aware is, is point one, as you say. Then taking those fears offline and managing and regulating those emotions through deep breathing can have a tremendous calming effect on that emotional mind. And then mm-hmm. I coach how to really respond to those fears and thoughts that you're having with that impartial mind, which again, can't really be accessed until you calm the emotional mind. So it's a matter of really finding out how to self-soothe first and then 
you know, put that journal to work. So I, I, I focus a lot on keeping a psychology journal, but um, just being aware of it is not enough. It's like, how can we actually go through and methodically calm it, um, calm the mind and then respond to those beliefs and then bring back into the picture that impartial mind that you're mm-hmm. that logical mind that helps you make trading decisions. So it's a, it's a couple steps, it's a few steps process, but um, it's been one that's worked really well for me and others. Have you done anything like what Rich Friesen likes to do? Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a, a psychologist who ended up becoming a trader. Um, we're in the middle of a um, mini series with him right now. We're like focusing specifically on trading psychology. And one of the key points of his program is, is like you just said, like first becoming aware of what your, your issues are. But the second part is figuring out what the underlying positive intent of those issues are. So like if I have problems with like not letting my stops work, like I, I move my stops too frequently, like he wants to dive in and say, okay, then the underlying, the objective of this undesirable behavior is to protect you from loss. So now in order to try to come up with a way to, you know, like mitigate its detrimental effects on your trading is to figure out a way to how to reframe that and take that behavior and make it work for something more positive. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that makes perfect sense. And one of the things you see in, chi- in psychology is, is is exactly that. So mm-hmm. there's an idea in so there's a brand like a kind of a modality of therapy right now that's that's growing quickly. It's called internal family systems. And the idea that that's very compatible with what you just said is that we have these uh, internal systems. We have these things built in place that are designed to protect us. So they have that that positive intent, they have a reason for being there, right? but it's misguided. It's misapplied. It's not, it's not working for you in the way that it's intended because it's got a really, really elementary understanding of what's going on. And more often mm-hmm. than not, if you think about it in trading terms, you've got that fight or flight, which in the middle of the night, if your fire alarm goes off, well, you want to jump up and super useful. Yeah. 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 It's incredibly yeah. useful because it's going to save you. You're not going to lay there and be like, yeah, whatever. And so, you know, there, there's that there's that piece of it um, where it's got that really like evolutionary fundamental reason for existing is, and that's to keep you alive. But the problem we have is that our, our our emotional mind can't distinguish between trying to keep you alive, which is a real life or in a real life or death situation. It applies that to trading where you may have like $200 on the line and that's not a life or death uh, situation. It might be for some people really impactful on their finances, but it's it's not a matter of you living and dying. And yet you, your emotional brain can't distinguish between these things. It just can't. Mm-hmm. And so there is an underlying positive, um, you know, desire from that, from that thing that's trying to protect you. And so it's just kind of making sure that it, it knows that, you know, you're not, you're, you're really appreciative of the kind of protection it's trying to give you, but it's just kind of misguided. It's like, how can we redirect that energy? And so I think, you know, a lot of what you're talking about is, is is recognizing those things, giving them their due, but um, kind of repurposing them. Yeah. Trying to just like shift their purpose a little bit to to allow them to still, yeah. Allow them to still have their role and still protect you, but making sure that they're actually protecting you now at this point. And and making sure that they're protecting you from the right things too, because yes. you have an instinct. Let's say you get in a trade and you're just so incredibly fearful. You have an instinct to want to get out of that trade just to make that bad feeling stop. And so it's mm-hmm. like, how can we like dial down? And and that's why I really like to focus first on the emotional regulation of it, because if you expect that it's going to come and it's going to come with these really intense uh, feelings, then we want to first like calm that intensity of it and moderate that a bit yeah. so that then we can think about, all right, well, it's trying to, you know, like, how can we repurpose this for something more useful for me? So that's why I really like to focus on that emotional regulation aspect before uh, thinking about that next piece, which is, you know, what you brought up. Well, yeah. And even with Rich, like uh, um, the first step, like just becoming aware of it, like, is like, you're not supposed to try to change anything yet. Like spend a few weeks, like becoming aware of all these things that you just just look at it with like an open mind like oh that's an interesting thing i didn't know i had this issue exactly make a note of that and then let's uh let's continue observing see what else we find yeah and i think when you talk about when you know when i talk about mindfulness i'm again it's not about becoming this sort of uh super zen. yeah it's it's not like yeah. about all that it's more of like it's just no it's just noticing that they're there and noticing those warning signs before they 
hijack your trade. And mm-hmm. so that's, you know, so I, that's why I think the awareness piece is so incredibly um, useful because you need to be mindful and aware of them being there. So that's the three buckets, huh? That's the three buckets. And, and you know, when I, or I guess we can call them three legs of a stool or tripod, but that's the real, you know, I think by classifying your issues or, you know, opportunities and strengths, like putting them into those three buckets gives you a really good idea, you know, plan of attack for addressing those three. And I found that you can't really move forward in trading until each of those is, has been resolved and, or at least worked on and kind of starting to put pieces in place. So again, you know, having that strategy and plan in place, then coming up with a way to protect your account and then coming up with a way for you to access that plan and, and make use of that account protection. Ah, I really like that. All three of those are, are super important and it's really hard. Like you hear some people say risk management's number one, but then at the same time, like good, how much is good risk management going to help you out when you have a shitty trade thesis to begin with? Right. I think that was some Eric just mentioned in a recent recording. Like it makes a great point. Like all these things are important and they're all important together. Yeah. And they're, they're, a lot of them are not as fun as the others though. So no, they're not. <laughs> so like, <laughs> And that's Mark Douglas in, in Trading in the Zone talks a lot about, or maybe it was in a in a uh, seminar he gave, but he talks a lot about, you, you know, like there's this like instinct that we have when we're not doing well to go back to the charts and go back to the markets and try to extract like a certain level of certainty in that market to make us feel better. But that's not going to make you feel better because markets are uncertain. It's it's a fact of of it's just a fact and accepted fact of markets is that we're not going to be perfect because you can't be. And so, you know, going back and looking at analysis and all of that different stuff is like a very natural first part because we want to make that trade work and we want to use the charts to make us feel better about our trade. But at some point in time, and it's different for everybody, you realize that that's not actually giving you the answers that you need. And you have to work on some of the less sexy stuff, which is, that risk management piece, which, you know, doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be over-designed or overdone, but it needs to be done. And then Mm -hmm. thinking more about that psychology and putting those things into practice. So yeah, not as fun, but good luck getting by without it. Yep. Yep. (laughs) I can (laughs) promise you, you will not. Yeah. Yeah. You won't. (laughs) Um, And and I guess I should also say though, that some people have more of a ability, you know, maybe more calm emotions, maybe they're a little more regulated, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so, it, it, these these things need, it, but maybe they're less experienced in analysis. So, you know, these people and these things need to be addressed with a different tilt for each person. There's no, that's why with, with my mentoring, there's no one size fits all. This is not a course that I can deliver you know, mass uh, to a mass of people because it's so different for every single person, which way they need to lean. Yeah. Yeah. You got to know. Yeah. Everyone, everyone's different. Everyone has strengths and weaknesses. You got to figure out what those weaknesses are in order to try to improve them and work on them. Exactly. And we have an interesting piece, too, that I was reading about is that we also grew up in different situations where money was either really abundant or money was really hard to come by. And so like a lot of our feelings around money could be very much informed by that. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm not a therapist, so I I, I can't like counsel people on that necessarily. And that's something that's like obviously much, much deeper and outside of the scope of trading, but it, it deserves you know, it merits some thought because if you grew up in a family where money was tight and the idea of losing even a dollar was unacceptable, that's going to massively, uh, you know, impact how you view, view risk in the market. And right. you get off size by $20 and, and start freaking out. Well, that could very well point to something that's like unresolved from, from that, you know, from your upbringing. It reminds me, I got to read Rich's book. <laughs> He's got the, the the conversations with money is like 99 cents on uh, on Kindle right now. But it pretty much addresses exactly that. It's about trying to come to grips with like your relationship with money. Yeah, it's just, it's again, it's like something that you can't, there's no one size fits all on it. And so mm-hmm. a book like that, I'm sure is great because it helps alert you to what to look for, what to think about, and, and kind of jumpstarts you thinking back into that sort of that, that thought around money. The other thing is that a lot of how we're raised, to, you know, influences how we raise children. And so, oh, yeah, that could, it can very much be downloaded from one generation to the next. You know, rich families tend to continue to be rich over time and, and poor families don't. It can be kind of hard to break out of that cycle. And so we kind of like pass yeah. those down from generation to generation, those thoughts about money and frugality and that sort of stuff. Well said. Uh, you mentioned a couple different times uh, a relationship with a, a mentor. I was curious if you'd like to explain like kind of the benefits in, in a mentorship and like why it was beneficial yeah, for you. Yeah, um, I find... I find the same, so I'm a triathlete too. So I find I have the same relationship when you, 
when I hire a coach versus when I'm just kind of on my own. But there's certainly an aspect of accountability and, and trading is can be a very lonely profession or, or um, endeavor. And so a lot of it comes down to, I think one of the things that one of my clients recently mentioned is this like, it's great to have this accountability because I give them something to do or something to work on. And if they don't do it, then that's on them. But I think to a certain extent, they feel like they've paid me and they're like more committed to, to, to being accountable and that I, they know I'm going to be looking to see if they've done it. And it, it looks bad if you don't. And so it's like a question of, of mm -hmm. kind of putting in peace something to motivate, putting in place a piece to motivate you. So that's been part of it. The other thing is that, and I think the most beneficial thing to me was you know, it helped me put these things together that were swirling in my mind, which is, again, comes back to those three buckets of, of analysis, risk management methodology, and, and mental game and psychology. And it's just someone to like, work with you on each of those aspects, someone who's been there before, someone who mm -hmm. can help you structure your time. Uh, one of the things I've found is that we have a lot of us have time, we have the time, um, whether you're devoting your time to sitting there staring at screens or whether you're devoting your time to uh, coming up with a strategy, well, that time needs to be well spent. If you have a lot of it or you have a little of it, you need to work smartly during that, during that time mm -hmm. you're spending. And so spending time on low impact or low, uh, low return on investment activity is not a good option because you're just not, you're not going to, First of all, you're going to get really frustrated with your lack of progress. But second of all, um, it's really hard to get out of those habits that we already have. And so I, I found that the mentorship helps you structure that time extraordinarily well so that you're spending it on very high return activities and not wasting it. Mm -hmm. Just staring at a computer screen and watching the charts bounce around uh, is not going to be very conducive to, to advancement. And yet people you know, tend to do a lot of that and then jump on Twitter and get influenced. And so Really just putting, right. yeah, so putting your time towards really high return activity from someone who's already been there before, I think it's been the biggest benefit for me uh, from having a mentor and I don't work with one anymore, but really gave me like a strong structured uh, workload so that I'm working on the right things at the right time. So that's been the biggest benefit. I think for what I've seen when I work with people is, is practically the exact same thing is making sure that they've got that second pair of eyes as well as some accountability on their strategy and then making sure that they're working on the right things. And then of course, just lending certain expertise I may have about market knowledge to them. So that's been really helpful. And then again, um, when it comes to, to methodology, risk management and, and uh, the mental side of things, it's just like putting in these, these activities and practices in place that are going to, you know, create value, but also mm -hmm. how can, you know, how can we like continue to work with these things without making it too onerous? And I'm sure we all have the, experience of trying to put too much into place and then it just feels like more work than it's worth and so it's just like yes, yes. yeah so it's just a matter of like eliminating the noise focusing on a few practices that are not going to overload you and then putting in place a systematic way of, of doing it every day uh keeping the workload minimal not being distracted or not being frustrated with having to do the work and, and really realizing why it's impactful has, was the biggest benefit for me and, and i think for others well i think having somebody too like you said who's been there and can look and see what you're doing and knows where the biggest gains are yeah. going to be is so much better when it comes to directing, like when giving you suggestions of like, these are the things you should be working on for the next, you know, so long. Yeah. Yeah. Like get the biggest return from your investment on your time too. Yeah. And I, you kind of lose, you lose visibility into what it becomes to be a trader when you're following someone who's just like, Oh, let's all go long here. And then, yeah, and, yeah. and like that's based purely on a I want to make a lot of money in a short amount of time mentality. And and the truth is, we all know that's not how trading works. And so it's like, how can we structure this and, and hopefully take as little time as possible to get there? Because we also don't want to enter into some massively long program, but put the practices in place and then watch them work for you over time. Ah, but it's going to take time, though, right? It's going to take time, I guess. You know, there's. The, I think every time I've tried to search for a shortcut has been when uh, I've seen the biggest setbacks. I think so. I, I think though that I think if you're working on the right things, I think it would surprise you how quickly you can make um, advances as long as you're working on the right things. Otherwise, uh, you just fall prey to the exact same issues that that plague you, which is 
you know, either a lack of a strategy on what to do because you're jumping around looking for quick wins. And, and honestly, mm-hmm. if you can put the right, if you can put the time into some of these sort of more boring things up front, well, you drastically cut down the time that it's going to take you later to, to scale up in, in advance. So, I mean, it's a small, you know, I think a small time investment to get the right pieces in place. And then you move forward with that. Yeah. And once you start doing them, just start doing these practices, you find that they work for you and it takes way less time than it would have taken you on your own. Yes, uh, the starting is the hardest part. Maintaining it is much yeah. easier, especially once you get it going. And then it's so much easier to start adding to totally. it too. Like start small, but something that you can do every day and, and keep doing it every day. Right. And then start looking to branch out and add to it as you start to see improvements. And exactly. The habit builds. And I like to focus on, like, let's start off with one strategy. Let's build from there because really that strategy is going to give you the blueprint for every other one. The other thing is you start to right. specialize and, and start to see the risk management and psychology piece take care of itself because you're, you've got those pieces in place on this one strategy. So it starts to like, I think there's a massive momentum snowball effect upwards in your development, but you can't really access that unless you've got the right pieces in place. Well said. Uh, one last question about mentoring is uh, like, what do you look for like if you're looking for a mentor, like what are some of the key things that you should look for in the person that you are wanting to be your mentor? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a, a few things. There's somebody who has been there before. It could be a the, perhaps the biggest piece of it because they need to have a good sense of what you're going through. And, and, and I think that a trader has often done that. I think that that's, you know, one thing. I think another thing is you want them to be really articulate and responsive and communicative. So Trading is happening every single day, every single minute of every single day. And if I'm not providing a client with support as they go along, and I'm only talking to them once a week, um, I think that's going to be hugely detrimental because they can advance a lot less quickly. The other thing, um, mm-hmm. the other thing I recommend in a mentor is, and, and I don't, you know, I'm trying not to like over push this on people, but it, it's really tough, I think, to go into like a mass produced course and expect that to be a mentor because really all they're doing is kind of like taking all the lessons they learned, distilling them and, and putting them out for others to learn on their own. And, and that might right. be really useful um, for learning certain things like analytical things um, or even learning about the psychology of yourself. I think it's useful in, in that sense. But if you want a mentor, I think that mentor needs to be really focused on, on you uh, and they need to be able to tailor the program to your needs because there is no one size fits all in here. It's just not, it's just not the nature of trading. And, and so I really want to, I would really encourage people to not, you know, not seek mentors that are going to be basically uh, giving them trade signals because that's not a mentor at all. No, no. <laughs> and no, the, the work that goes into a mentorship should be pretty much equal, I think, on both sides yeah, of it. Yeah, I, I, it, it needs to be. I agree. And one of the things I like to do is talk with the client first and come up with a game plan together. So that's, that's kind of speaks mm-hmm. to that equal sides thing and making sure that we're on, we're in agreement of where we're going, agreement going forward rather than like, Hey, here's like some psychology course that you can take on your own time. But I'm in this trade room giving you trade signals, because as I said earlier, just because you have a plan or a strategy or a trade signal doesn't mean you can execute it well, because you may not have risk management, mm-hmm. but the mental uh, strength to do so. So, you know, it's, it's really like, someone it's really like looking for a mentor that's going to be able to tailor it to you understand your needs put them through put your needs through kind of their own filter and then spit out to you a prescription for you know rectifying some of your issues and that's really how that's really where they but a personalized that's exactly where the personalized comes in because it's just not it's just impossible because you and i come from different backgrounds or different upbringings that we need to kind of tilt these things in a certain direction and and unless the person is able to do that for you they're really not serving your needs Again, well said. Man, this has been a great conversation, Alex. I almost wish we had another hour. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I told you beforehand when we were talking offline that I didn't think the conversation would stagnate because I can talk all day, so... No, I was just hoping we managed to get through everything <laughs> I had on my list. There's some stuff that I, I'd still like to pick your brain on, but uh, I think you kind of covered most of it pretty oh, well. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah, no, I, I like to, similar to how I trade, um, I like to think about this in a really structured manner, in an organized manner, so that we can kind of go through those buckets and, and talk about each one, and it gives us some uh, framework for the, the conversation, but also uh, just how I trade and, and discipline. Mm-hmm. Well, Alex, if people want to learn more about you, where can they check you out? Yeah, my, my Twitter profile is uh, sort of the uh, place, my, my mouthpiece. That's where I talk to people. That's where I provide analysis and, and different trading advice. Uh, my name is Alex Demosthenes, D-E-M-O-S. 
T-H-E-N-E-S. And my Twitter handle is just Alex Demosthenes. So that's pretty easy. Um, and on there, you can find my uh, link to my blog, my, my newsletter, as well as the mentoring services or uh, you know, that's, those are the primary places. I also have a YouTube that's linked on my Twitter uh, link tree that's got a lot of more analytical stuff um, on that YouTube, but uh, hoping to really ramp up my content offering on YouTube, but I'm just one person and there's so many hours in the day and I'm also, I know, right? <laughs> I'm also a trader, so I got to do my own thing too. So it's, it's tough, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's where I share a lot of my stuff and, and um, you can get in touch with me through DMs there too. Uh, and we'll have links for all that in the episode description if you want to Check those out. I encourage you to do so. I was browsing through the uh, the newsletter preparing for this interview, and the, uh, there's some really great content on there. I'm looking forward to seeing more. Get great, posted. thanks. Yeah, I, I um, that's probably how I'll be spending the rest of today is figuring out the next newsletter. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for 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 dropping by. But uh, you know, unfortunately. Uh, we got stuff that has to get done. I hear you. Can't keep the doors open all day. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And I'm uh, happy to come on anytime. Let's do it again. All right. And uh, everyone listening, if you enjoyed Alex's interview today, uh, make sure you check out that guest page. We have a directory that lists every other guest that we've ever spoken to. I'm sure there's going to be somebody that you'll, you'll also enjoy if you enjoyed this one. But uh, we'll be back at you guys soon with another uh, exciting guest episode. But until then, you know, take care out there. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks in the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.